Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. But first, a word from our sponsor. Potential is everywhere in the Choctaw people. It's in our schools and students. It's in our small businesses and entrepreneurs. Potential is in our lifestyle and health. It's in our culture and heritage. Passion and commitment is in our blood. Ingenuity and economy are a tradition. And the Chutla Foundation was founded for this potential. To cultivate minds and hearts, to stimulate ideas and passions, to extend lives and improve health through education, and to preserve and promote the power of our past. The Chatha Foundation, meeting the potential of the Choctaw people. I've often shared with you listeners that sometimes to get what you want in life, you have to take leaps of faith and put yourself out there, sometimes even making a fool of yourself. I've been following a gentleman on Facebook for quite a while who works in traditional seminal textiles, and I've always enjoyed seeing what garments and regalia he comes up with. So when I recently saw him at the grand opening of the first Americans Museum in Oklahoma City, Looking at an exhibit while dressed in full traditional Seminole garb, I just had to walk up to him. I couldn't remember his first name. All I could remember was his last name, Tiger. So I put myself out there and asked, hey, is your name Tiger? (laughs) And thankfully he said yes. And I asked if he wouldn't mind hopping onto my show and sharing about his expertise. So y'all welcome my guest, a man who is here to testify to my making a fool out of myself, Jake Tiger. Jake, or maybe I should say Tiger, welcome to Native Chalk Talk. So go, everyone. Awesome. Um, so what were you thinking when you, <laughs> I ran up to you and said, are you Tiger? <laughs> yeah, it kind of caught me off guard, but also that day, um, and I had all kinds of people walking up to me and wanted to take pictures of me and asking me about my regalia. So I was kind of used to it when you, by the time you got there. Yeah. You're, you're, and then you were probably like, why didn't she want my picture? I, I should yeah. have done that. Dang it. But yeah, you, uh, you asked if my name was tiger and I was like, uh, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. And, uh, you hand me your card and you mentioned about the podcast and, um, kind of just wanted to talk about Seminole culture and, uh, me being a textile artist and other, entities of traditional arts my sister stacy and i were both there together at the first americans museum and at first i only saw you from the back with your traditional seminal attire as i mentioned earlier and and you were looking at an exhibit and i told my sister wow it's it's like the past meeting the present you know with that the look of that so i took a photo so 
I did actually get a photo. You're welcome, Jake. You didn't know I took one from the back, but anyway, (laughs) I'll be sure to post that photo on my native talk talk Facebook page. And then I was like, Hey, I know that clothing. So that's when I walked up with my card. So, all right, moving on. I'm super excited to talk to a fellow preservationist today. I'm attempting to save our ancestral stories and traditions and culture by doing this podcast. And then you, on the other hand, you have tremendous expertise that really is one of a kind in seminal textiles and traditional garments. And also you're the guy who, if the world comes to an end, you can survive in the wild by utilizing your traditional native ways of hunting and making fire and tanning hides and, and creating shelter. So kudos to you. So um, you are Seminole, Ojibwe, and Sac and Fox, and then you grew up in Seminole, Oklahoma. Uh, where did you go to school? So I actually went to school here in uh, Seminole County. Uh, it was a small school called Varnum. Uh, Seminole is actually like the main kind of school here, but Varnum is one of like the small kind of country schools around here. And I had graduated with 15 people. So usually I tell people, they're like, so how, like, how, or what was it like there? And I said, I, I kind of hang out with everyone. I was the captain of the basketball team. So I got to hang out with the jocks. Yeah. It was, a, it was a, once again, it was, it was a country school. So I hanged out with all the cowboys or country boys, whatever you want to call them. And just basically about everyone I kind of got along with. And so I, I had like a while, this little plethora of like friends. I can't remember. There's like some kind of animal in the, I think New Zealand who doesn't have like a, uh, natural predators so they're they're kind of just like uh cool with like everyone and <laughs> kind of like basically being like a capybara in a way that, that's you're a capybara <laughs> you're tiger part tiger part capybara <laughs> you're like i know my last name's tiger but really i more identify with a capybara <laughs> <laughs> oh my daughter loves those that's funny well, I can't help but say it. I know you're going to roll your eyes, but you're the Seminole from Seminole, Oklahoma, who works for the Seminole Nation. There, I got it yeah. out of my system. <laughs> it's just good, too good to not say. I was, I was waiting for that to happen. Right. Um, yeah, you knew it yeah. would happen. Yeah. yeah people would ask, like, uh, so where are you? I'm Seminole. They're like, oh, where do you live? I said, Seminole. Like, oh, do where you do you work? The Seminoles. Oh man, like who, who planned your life out for you? It's perfect. Uh, I've, I've been in this town all my 23 years. So it, it's kind of a, <laughs> it was kind of just a predicament. <laughs> it was just a matter of time until I uh, made that personality trait. <laughs> totally. It's just like in your, it's in your blood. Well, and yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great town and it's a great nation. So tell me about the great work you do for the Seminole Nation. So yeah, I worked for the Simulation in the Historic and Cultural Preservation Office. Uh, if anyone doesn't know what a Historic Preservation Office is, uh, we mostly have to answer to letters uh, regarding to NAGPRA and under the uh, 106. And what, what that is, 106 is basically whenever there's an archaeological dig somewhere on a construction site that's undisturbed land and they come across an artifact or a human remains, or an old ceremonial site, anything like that, they have to notify the tribal nations that were residing in that area. And we kind of have to go back and forth with these archaeologists and uh, different companies. And it, it's pretty extensive work. It, it's pretty busy. We uh, For the Seminole Nation, we originally were doing eight states, and I think we just uh, included two more. Wow. It was uh, Tennessee and uh, North Carolina, I believe. 
we're, we're pretty a uh, small office, but we also like, so that's kind of most of the stuff we do. Um, but that, that's kind of more of what my, my boss does. Well, I mean, of course I help him out too, but most of what I do, my, uh, titles called the a cultural specialist cultural technician and all it is is i do a lot of the outreach and education okay and, I'm, and i meet with a lot of the local schools around here and do presentations for universities in state and out of state and working with, with museums also and they just haven't doing a demonstration anywhere uh, i got some coming up in the next month because for native american heritage month I'd be, I'll be pretty uh, pretty busy for that. People uh, were joking around saying uh, in uh, November, everyone wants to see an Indian, so they call us. <laughs> and so we, uh, we're doing that right now. And Oh, boy. But it, it's, it's a fun job. We're actually we're, um, preparing to get ready for one this Saturday called Sorghum Days. Hmm. And I'm going to be out there with my Cherokee friend, and we're going to do some flint napping and showing people how to wrap uh, river cane darts and all that kind of stuff. And Man, I wish I but could be there. Yeah, it's it's really fun. We, uh, we get to, you know kind of blow people's minds, and uh, my favorite is showing people how to make a fire with just a uh, flint and steel. It's a uh, you know just flicking the lighter that it just blows her mind that I turned a piece of a uh, metal and rock and some uh, tinder and just made made a fire just like that. You know, I'm and, uh, I'm amazed that people can do that because like if you watch the movies, someone tries to you know cowboys out there out in the wild trying to light a fire and it takes quite a while and then there's people like you who could just get out there and do it well i guess that's why you're the expert yeah uh, and that's that's the thing too that well usually what we talk about with the well, all these kind of tra- traditional arts is today it's really heavily romanticized but in, in actuality it, it was something that was just normal 200 hmm. years ago right. and before that yeah, so it, it kind of you know kind of shows how society has changed, and but one thing I've I've learned from one of my elders was it, it's still important to know these uh, certain skills because he one thing he told me was we're still the same people that we were 200 years ago. The only thing that has changed is technology. That's it. Hmm. Interesting. It's like tools, technology, the way we do things, but we're all at our core still the same. And I mean, I think those skills that you're teaching people, obviously those are useful skills. Again, if the world came to an end or maybe there's a zombie apocalypse or something, I don't know, then you would be the guy that be able to do those things and stay alive. But mm-hmm. we all need to learn those things, especially for those of us who are natives. Maybe we should get back to our roots a little bit and know how to survive and, and do the things that our ancestors did. And something that I think is really interesting too, that you know how to do is how to brain tan leather. And that's definitely a topic that we'll get into later. So listeners stay tuned. Super interesting. Now you mentioned earlier, you've done some work for the museums in Oklahoma, right? Yes, correct. Um, right now I'm working on a permanent uh, display for the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum in Oklahoma City. What are you uh, doing for them? So what I'm doing for them, uh, it, it's a pretty inter- interesting story how that came about. We went down there back in, I want to say March, because they had a spiral mount exhibit and they kind of had a delay because there's a big giant blizzard that came in Oklahoma back in February where we had the Arctic, uh, the oh, Arctic yeah. freeze, Arctic blast, where it was, you know, actually Oklahoma is the coldest place on the planet for like a week. And so they had to delay it. And then we want to go check it out so bad, but we had to wait until everything kind of cleared up. And we went down there in March and I took myself and my director and 
we took some other people with us, but we're kind of just walking around. We we uh, we met the curator who set up that display, and he was telling us he was pretty knowledgeable about the southeast. You can tell he was really passionate about learning about the southeast, and he said it was a uh, a ten year process just to put up this uh, temporary exhibit that was only up for three months. Mm-hmm. And so, but it was so well done. I was pretty impressed, but because he not just wasn't just spiral mound people. It, he had a lot of stuff from uh, Moundville and Adoba and uh, Omogi Mounds, all that stuff. It, it kind of ties into uh, just the whole southeastern culture. I, I got to meet. I was in that meeting. A lot of times, I kind of take the lead with some of these people, and you know, kind of just do this kind of networking thing I like to do, and try to get to know these people and try to make some connections. And uh, the curator, his name is Dr. Eric Singleton. He's a, one of my favorite people to work with right now. And and so him and I were kind of talking because uh, we're, we're looking at a bandler bag that was made by the late Jay McGirt. He was a really well-known uh, Seminole Creek artist who mostly uh, did bandler bags. Mm-hmm. And he was, we were looking at him and he said, I was like, man, this is pretty cool. And he said, yeah, he said, they're, uh, he said we're sending out to University of Alabama or Birmingham in May and we're not going to have anything like this. And so, at me, it just clicked. So I pulled my phone out and showed him some of the work that I do. You're like, well. And yeah, I was, I was like, well, I said, uh, lucky you uh, mentioned that because I'm right here. <laughs> and Happy so, to help. Uh, That's awesome. <laughs> Networking so is we, really important, y'all. Yeah, and so we, I, I was showing him and he was pretty impressed with uh, the work. And we kind of got to talking and we kind of the conversation kind of ended up to where he got a lot of good feedback on this southeastern textile or uh mound builder culture and so and we kind of got to talking about that and of course it's called the western cowboy and heritage museum well when you think about the wild west you think of you know just plains indians and Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, I'm not hate on the Plains tribes, but I'm, we, we see a lot of it so much. We don't get to see the varieties of other In Oklahoma, you, you definitely do. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, it's, it's all just powwows and, you know, we, we, we want to see something a little bit different sometimes, you know, we yeah. don't want to, we don't want to get, uh, just oversaturated. And totally. so I was talking to Dr. Singleton and I said, I said, yeah, I said, we kind of like, oh, it'd be cool if we get to see something different that's around here permanently and he said yes because uh, we're, we're talking about uh, not being just portrayed as homo- uh, as a homogenous group that we've been seeing in the john wayne movies you know looking at the john wayne indians all we all look the same but there's no variety of us <laughs> so and so true. and, and the so, faces are painted orange and yeah yeah they're all painted orange and, yeah so I, I was talking to dr singleton and I said, if you're up for it, I can put a bandolier bag on display and y'all can keep it up here permanently if you'd like. And he said, yeah, I'd like that. But he said, I would also like something, you know, just a little more flamboyant because it, it's kind of dark in the, we, we first talked about putting in the, the basically like the Native American room. And he said, it was kind of dull. And he said, I'm going to like liven it up with something, you know, some bright colors, but no. Yeah. Some, oh, and who and, better than the Seminole, right? Yeah. I love okay, the I fancy be, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Because he, he, he was kind of. Yeah, you know, he didn't want to look at leather clothing all the time and kind of what you know, kind of kind of spice it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so we uh, we talked about putting it in there. And he said, Well, so how do you feel about making us a full body mannequin and that would go on permanent display? And I said, I can absolutely do that. And so we kind of got to talking. I was trying to figure out, I was like, Well, if this is gonna be on permanent display, and I gotta figure out like what kind of outfit. And so I agreed to it. And then it was like uh, probably about like a week later. Or so I, I finally uh, did my research and tried to figure out like what kind of outfit would really get people's attention and 
And I really try to make the the pieces really look like either if I'm not basing off a historical figure, I want it to look like it's it's telling a story to remind someone that it's not a you know that this is this is this is a person that lived 200 years ago. They're not just some uh, mythical being that we kind of talk about in stories. This is a person just, just like you and I. Mm-hmm. And and so I was looking through it and I did my research and and it finally came upon me my my ancestor Osceola. And there's a painting of him by Robert John Curtis that was taken at Fort Moultrie in South Carolina in 1838. And I picked that one because there, there's some of him, uh, there's two lithographs of him by George Catlin. The only ones I resigned didn't do Catlin because he's very loose, loosely based with his details. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of kind of stay away from him. And it's, it's one of the things you kind of notice when you become a historian, you got to oh. do when you're doing your research. Yeah. And so... I called back Dr. Singleton. I said, I, I found out what this type of display we're going to do. So I'm going to base this off, off of my ancestor, uh, Osceola. And I'm, I showed him the, the photos and the, the outfit and kind of showed him descriptions. And I said, because in the, in the painting, you only see from, uh, from his like midsection all the way up. You don't see the legs. So I'm going off by other descriptions of him wearing uh, red leggings with uh, brass military buttons and a light blue uh, silk trimming on it or edging on it mm-hmm. and and he was uh really excited and really um how would I say, just really uh like i said he was pretty excited about it when i told him about yeah, this right? and, and so I, I did my research and i found all of the correct materials that i need and even the the print that i picked out for the for the coat looks somewhat similar to the the original one and so i'm actually in the works of that right now that's what i'm working on right now at work is uh, i finished the leggings and the, the breechcloth and the moccasins already. So those those were uh, didn't take that long to do. And right now I'm doing a, a bandolier bag. But in the in the painting the of Osceola, he's not wearing a bandolier bag. He's wearing a sash. But there's a bandolier bag in Florida that is said to be Osceola's, and oh. it's one of my favorites of all time because it is it's the colors and the designs. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna have the display right in the Grandy Gallery. So as soon as you walk into the room, that's gonna be the first thing you see in the in the gallery. Oh, cool. When will people see this? Um, I told Dr. Singleton I would have it done by January 30th. And we're actually going to have a meeting in about two weeks. And we're going to try to figure out the, try, try, try to tweak some things out. We're uh, get some measurements for the mannequins and yeah. talking about when, and when actually going to put this on display because we're going to try to revamp that room. And so I'm projecting sometime in February of 2022. That's and awesome. So, yeah, it's uh, every day. Like I'm working on it, I just get more excited because I'm you know, I'm making more progress on it, and I'm getting closer to that due date. Yes. And yeah, so this is one of the things that's kind of keeping me going right now is just that excitement of seeing this stuff finally completed and put on display. For and sure. So one of the cool things I told him about it too is that I'm basing this off an original painting, and I showed him the one I wanted to, wanted to do. Well, he did a, a step further. And he said, I can get that original painting on loan for the first few months. Oh my gosh. Goes up. What? So he, we, we've already secured it. It's down in uh, Dallas in the archive center. And he's uh, going to have it on display right next to the outfit. For, oh my uh, gosh. Yeah. How cool so this, is that? this is going to be a pretty big deal. And so we'll have the painting, we'll have the full body mannequin and uh, the bandler bag right next to it. Not him wearing it, but having it next to it. Because I didn't want to have, you know, too much going on at once. So this is going to be really, uh, really exciting work that's going on right now. And 
And of course, another one that I've secured back in earlier this year, I want to I want to say it was in April or May, was the uh, Gilcrease Museum. And everyone's listening, they you know familiar with the Gilcrease Museum that's in Tulsa, and it's all funded by uh, I want to say his name is Thomas Gilcrease, but I might get the first name wrong. But uh, basically, what he was in the early 1900s, late 1800s, he was a collector and really wanted to collect um, native artifacts, make sure they were preserved cool. uh, properly. And so in that museum, it's all just Native Americans in there. Well, in 2024, there's going to be a brand new museum built and we're going to have a similar display up there. And I was talking to the ladies over there at the Gilcrease and they want two permanent displays, a Seminole man and woman. So I've already figured out the outfits and all that, and I got that put together, but I got plenty of time to work on that one. It sounds and like you've so, got a lot on your, I mean, and you're working. It's yeah, a lot. Yeah. yeah. Not only just doing the displays, but you know, like, so going to work every day and it's not every day we're doing, I'm working on textiles. It's other things. I'm doing demonstrations and doing cool. lectures uh, online for different universities, uh, for insight and out of state and going to, uh, going to the schools around here and all this kind of stuff. So. Shoot. It's kind of a, a jack of all trades, but it's it's the the best job I've ever had, and uh, plan to keep it that way. I mean, how many people can say they actually get to work in their within their own culture, and that's and they get paid to do that every day? How cool is that? So it definitely sounds like folks in Oklahoma need to head over to the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum in February of 2022 and beyond right. to see. I, I just think it's so cool too that you're getting to pay homage to. Osceola as well, since he's your, mm-hmm. one of your answers. And we will talk about him in a little bit too. So congrats on that. That is such an honor and way to really hone your craft and, and um, get good stuff out there for us to see that's authentic because for a long time, we haven't seen things that are authentic or you'll see it from way back when, but to know that somebody can still make that, those kinds of pieces today that they used to make many years ago is really, really cool. Now, beyond your good work for the Seminole Nation and the museums, tell us about your acting career. Yeah, so I'm also a, I'm an actor. I've been doing this uh, since 2017. I've been in multiple films and commercials and all all different kinds of stuff. And I probably say my most notable role was I did a film back in 2019. It came out earlier this year. It was actually the, the number one movie in China for uh, I want to say about two months, I believe. And it was it was a dinosaur movie we filmed down here in Oklahoma. Yes. One of the, the the funnest things I've ever done in my entire life was work on that <laughs> film. And, That's awesome. And a little spoiler alert, I do get eaten by a T-Rex, which was really cool. I remember <laughs> as, a, as a kid, I was obsessed with dinosaurs. So I was, just, yeah, it was a dream come true doing <laughs> that kind of stuff. You're like, dude, I got to be eaten by a dinosaur. Yeah. That's, that's great. So, and where was it filmed in Oklahoma? So we filmed in multiple locations around the state. Uh, the two main places were at Oklahoma State University and Robert's Cave. And the, the basically the whole premise of the movie was, uh, it's kind of like that movie Ready Player One, but also kind of mixed with the Hunger Games also. Ah, cool. Yeah, so it's kind of like that, that kind of premise and storyline. and But it's pretty cool. Uh, I had some uh, speaking lines, but they uh, they dubbed it over in Mandarin. But it was, it was fun. <laughs> Is it, it funny was, to uh, see yourself speak Mandarin? Yeah, because I, I watched it a, a few weeks back, and I watched it, and it didn't like the voice didn't match my how I'd usually sound, and <laughs> it was going so it was going so fast that it matched my lips moving, and I thought was I thought that was pretty neat, and and I mean number yeah, one cool. in China, that's pretty damn good. 
Congrats. Yeah, like I said, it was all uh, majority were our Oklahoma actors too. And that's that's one thing that um a lot of people don't really understand about Oklahoma in terms of speaking about uh film talent is mm-hmm. everyone thinks all the best actors are either from LA or New York. Right. Or, oh. And they they come here and they just find that there's so many people that are involved in it and there's so yeah, much it, talent in Oklahoma. I think people like you're saying would be pretty surprised. Cause it's, it, there's just not a ton of spotlight on us. Although that is changing now. Yeah. And then it's one thing too, but the, there's, there's this uh, sense of camaraderie here in Oklahoma with the, mm-hmm. and the, the film industry and what it was uh, with the crew and talent and casting directors and agents. We all kind of, we all have kind of a sense of camaraderie that really works uh, in our favor. Love that. And, and it shows that, like I said, the, oh, on that dinosaur film, like it was most of the Oklahoma actors and, I said most of these people were my uh, really good friends I met over the years, and we're filming at Robert's Cave, and they had us, uh, they let us uh, stay in the cabins that week while we're filming. And uh, after we got done filming uh, at night, we would you know go in the mess hall and go play cards and listen to Motley Crue, and I said, <laughs> it, it kind of felt it kind of felt like summer camp for adults. Right, <laughs> that sounds like fun. Yeah, that's 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 the that's the fun part. When you when you really start to have fun, that's when the the real work starts to happen. Yeah, totally. And like you said, lots of camaraderie. So, where can we find this gem, Bygone Dinosaur World? I know I'm for sure the Bygone is still on Netflix. Dinosaur World. I can't remember where I found that one. I have to look that one back up. There's another one I did for the Smithsonian, and that was the uh, the Battle of Little Bighorn. And what that was, uh, in my scene, I'm the guy who shot Sitting Bull. And it, it wasn't wasn't my choice. The the uh, director uh, just assigned it to me the, the day I got there. He said, "Are you going to shoot signal?" I was like, "Uh." I was like, uh. Uh, okay. I was like, "I was like, I'm still getting paid though, right?" <laughs> and, it actually came out to be a, a, a rock paper scissors. And I actually lost, so that's why I had to be the guy who shot signal. Uh, uh, that is awesome. Yeah, so I'm I'm preserved in the Smithsonian for all the wrong reasons. I was just there the other day. I wish I would have known that. I think that would be amazing to see. And where can we get it again? On Hulu, that right? One, um, yeah, that one's on Hulu and also Paramount. And if you okay. go on the Smithsonian channel on Paramount, uh, okay, it should great. take you right to the the titles of the Battle of Bighorn. And it came out in 2020. Okay. And somewhere, like I want to say, like halfway or like three quarters into the documentary is my scene. Great. Um, uh, once again, we filmed that here in Oklahoma at Pawnee Bill's Ranch. Oh, you did? <laughs> Love that yeah. place. That's cool. But I remember uh, uh, once again, I was wearing a, it was a historic uh, historical um, scene. I'm wearing the I'm wearing a wool jacket and wool pants and his leather boots that came up to my knee. And we're filming in like early summer, so I was I was fighting it that day. Mm. Oh my gosh! Yeah, right. Whew. I don't think people realize like why do people film in the hottest part of the year? Yeah, that's when I went just this summer. I worked on the Martin Scorsese film, uh, Kills of a Fire Moon, and we filmed in early July, and it was hot those days. Oof. And like, so we're wearing uh, suits, and you know, we're trying to look, we're trying to look like the 1920s. And I remember <laughs> in, in between takes, we had PAs and all kinds of people like walking up to us with water bottles, and like basically we had to like force ourselves to drink water just so we because we were like out in the sun the whole time. Yeah. They would like they would hand us a water bottle and say like we know you're not we know you're not thirsty but we need to drink this so you don't pass out. 
Now, Killers of the Flower Moon is the upcoming movie by Martin Scorsese about the Osage murders. It's also starring a wonderful cast of Native Americans. Believe it or not, the cast playing the natives aren't a bunch of white folks that they painted Mm -hmm. orange faces on like you and I talked about earlier. Plus, of course, Robert De Niro and Leonardo DiCaprio are starring in it. I'm so looking forward to it. It should be coming out in 2022. And um, so what roles did you play? in it and did you get to meet the stars yes yeah, so i i just did background on that movie and uh yeah so the the first night i actually met all the, the a-list celebrities and it was like when like the first like it was all like with like within an hour meeting those guys and wow it, i want to say it was like around like three o'clock in the morning i believe when i met those guys and the first one was leo and that, like it threw me off because i was like hey like you're so, like only seen on tv i know you're like a real person <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's saw, saw martin scorsese and that kind of threw me off how short he was oh really and, yeah but the one that really got to me was one of my favorite actors of all time is robert de niro yes and i didn't i didn't know it because he was standing right next to me and they uh they, they placed her right next to him and i'm kind of just looking around uh, kind of looking at the set i'm looking at everybody and i hear this voice and like i stopped my tracks i'm like i've i've heard that voice uh, <laughs> like, almost all my life and I just turned my shoulder to the, I just looked to the, looked to the left. And that's Robert De Niro to stand right next to me. I was like, oh. And oh, ho, ho. That, so that was actually like, the actual like starstruck moment was that one. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it would be hard. I mean, like you and I were talking the other day and it's like the worst thing in the world is to walk up to a celebrity and be like, I'm your biggest fan. I love your movies, all that stuff. It's just, you know, you try to play it cool, but it would be really hard with certain celebrities. Yeah, so I tried to, you know, one to like start a conversation. You know, I don't want to, you know, glorify him because he's probably tired of that for, you know, sure. doing it for fifty years. And so we, we kind of just talked about the weather, talking about how hot it was. <laughs> really? That's what I did with Leo. Yeah, that's what I did with Leo. I, we talked about those Model T cars and talked about driving stick shifts and all that kind of stuff. And that's awesome. Yeah, they, they kind of look relieved that someone, you know, wasn't asking what Hollywood was like and. Yeah, or for an autograph or mm-hmm. whatever. That's great. I love that story. So, uh, and last but certainly not least, my favorite show, and it airs on FX on Hulu. The season is over, but is Reservation Dogs. I watched you in it. So much fun. Uh, tell us which episode you're in. Yeah, so I'm in uh, episode four, and how that came about. I want to say this is back in April of this year, and I was at work, and I was like, I was actually during a meeting. And Sterling called me out of nowhere and said, hey, uh, I need your help on something. And I was like, okay, what's up? And he said, well, we're working on this, movie, or this TV show right now called Reservation Dogs. And he said, there's a scene, there's kind of like a hallucination, uh, kind of like a flashback of these uh, Creeks and Seminoles in the 1800s. I was like, oh, that's, oh, that's pretty cool. I was like, do y'all need like, help with language or something like that? And he said, no, I just need help with the uh, wardrobe. I was like, oh, okay. I was like, I said, well, do you have everything picked out? And he goes, no, because no one, you know, makes this type of clothes. Yeah. Said, I need, I need your help. I was like, oh, okay. So you need me to make the clothing for you or do rentals? And he said, exactly. I was like, okay, cool. Um, well, what's my time frame? And he said, two weeks. Oh god. And so I had to let know. Oh. Uh, and how long would it normally before. take you to make stuff like that? So I kind of just rented out some of the clothes that I had, and I had, I had to make uh, three pairs of moccasins and some other things for the for the show and and so um it, it was pretty cool and he uh he even put me in the scene i'm behind the 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 guy with the the spanish accent i was uh standing there for i want to say like 20 seconds at least and even though i was on set for like eight hours that day oh just for that one scene huh yeah just for the one scene 
And that's one thing people don't understand about the film industry is mm-hmm. we'll be out there all day and we only get like a few seconds of screen time. Yeah, right. And then it's cool because there's this like if anyone wants to pinpoint the scene that he's in, if you're if you're watching it, you'll you'll understand just from what he said. But it's when the mom goes to the mansion and you're beside the table and you're one of the people that the mother envisions. And then there's a girl wearing a dress pouring lemonade. But tell us about that girl in the dress or tell us about the dress itself. Yeah, so it's actually uh, Jen Raider. She's uh, she's Ojibwe and she's a casting assistant. She's also a uh, also an actor here in Oklahoma. And the, the dress she's wearing, she's actually wearing my mom's dress. Wow. And yeah, so she's wearing that. And the, the guy next to her, James Whitecloud, he's wearing some of my clothing. And, and of course, my clothing I, I was wearing in that scene also. And the funny thing was when I, when I first saw that show, when I, when I saw that scene, the, um, I think that they talked about it in the scene. She's like pointing out this like gazelle or antelope in that background. She asked if he if he hunts, and I was telling uh, I think it was my mom. I said I was like yeah I saw I remember that thing. I said uh, I uh, I got bored and I I put my finger in his nose. <laughs> We're in this like million dollar mansion over here, just like poking the antelope in the nose. Oh my god, so funny! Oh, you didn't tell me earlier that earlier. That's hilarious. <laughs> jake tiger professional oh i love it so yeah we'll definitely have to keep an eye out for the antelope too knowing the story (laughs) behind that oh lordy well that's what happens when they keep you on the set for eight hours yeah so we're we're in that back room and they're kind of doing scenes i'm kind of standing there i'm standing next to james i was like i was like man i'm like he's saying like he said like i wonder how much this thing's cost i was like i don't know but i'm gonna do this and i put my finger in his nose (laughs) Uh, that's, what happens, that's what happens when you put some small town Oklahomans in a $5 mansion. We may look cool, but we're really just a bunch of hillbillies. <laughs> well, congrats. And those are some fantastic parts. It must be rewarding to be able to share your craft and working, uh, you know, with traditional clothing, sticking your fingers in antelope's noses. And <laughs> so funny. Um, so quick side note, which is actually a significant side note and we mentioned part of it earlier you're a descendant of two war chiefs correct yeah so on my seminal side uh through my mom's uh paternal and uh from he guys from his mother from our powell side we are related to osceola uh being a direct descendants and i've once again my my grandpa is one of the guys that got me into you know, knowing all uh, about being seminal and being proud of that. So that, that's one of the main things I've always took pride in because I was reminded that my grandpa was telling me, he said, uh, no matter how, how hard things get, remind yourself that you you come from a long line of warriors, including Osceola. Awesome. And so, yeah. And uh, even on my, uh, but yeah, th- th- that was a pretty cool thing. And I just recently found out we uh, come from the lineage from uh, Blackhawk on my second Fox side. Yeah. Just two war chiefs. It's yeah. fine. it's impressive so for our listeners sack and fox war chief black hawk was born in illinois in 1767 and by the way during the war of 1812 he sided with chief tecumseh with the british against the u.s army so i thought that was a interesting uh, factoid there black hawk resented a tribal leader who signed the treaty of st louis that gave up 50 million acres of their land so he started a confederacy of 1500 warriors known as the british band consisting of the Sox, Meskwaki, and Kickapoo. And they crossed from Iowa into Illinois in 1832. Their goal was actually not war, 
as Black Hawk, he was 65 years old at that point, and he wanted a calm and uneventful retirement back in, in, you know, his, his homelands in Illinois, where they could just plant corn once again, but their dreams of resettling in their ancestral lands were cut short when an army of 7,000 soldiers burned their fields and went to battle against the Sack and Fox. Another side note, Abraham Lincoln was one of those who took part in the battles, by the way. So the Black Hawk Warriors were defeated in August of 1832, and then a treaty was then signed, which turned over 6 million acres more of land. So Black Hawk never reached his dream of retiring in Illinois, and instead he died in Iowa at the age of 72 in 1838. In his autobiography, Black Hawk said to those who defeated him, May the great spirit shed light on your path so that you may never experience the humility that the power of the American government has reduced me to. This is the wish of a man who in his native forest was once as proud and bold as yourself. It's pretty sad, but, um, you know, I know that you probably think about these two war chiefs and take some strength from the power that they had when, when they were able to be out there roaming on their lands and, and all that. So, and as for war chief Osceola, he was born in Alabama in 1804 to a Muscogee woman as a child, his group was defeated in the Creek war. So they had to head to Florida and they merged with the Seminole people. And then the U S tried to remove the tribe to Indian territory territory. So Osceola in 1836 led a resistance in the second Seminole war, by the way, that year, he also killed a Seminole chief because the chief was selling cattle to the white people. In 1837, he was captured and he died in Charleston, South Carolina from malaria or an internal infection infection in 1838. And there's so much more to these chiefs lives and stories. I, you know, we don't have enough time to cover it all, but feel free to look them up and, and learn more on your own listeners. Please do that because I think it's a way of honoring their memory. These were war chiefs who did whatever they could to try to hang on to their ancestral lands. They were heroes despite the outcome. And now let's fast forward to today and talk about another hero you're related to your grandpa. Would you describe for us what you typically work with in traditional Seminole clothing and textiles and who influenced you to go into this field? Yeah. So my, uh, my main inspiration was my grandfather, Dwayne Miller. He, uh, like I said, he, uh, came from, uh, Osceola. He was wind clan and Tom Palmer band and he was a full blood Seminole. And yeah, he, uh, took a lot of pride in being Seminole and really focused on the identity of it you know really identify as Seminole and was a really good historian and did a lot of research for our people and and it, it kind of just came naturally when I when I was a kid and he uh took us to historic sites either it was Fort Gibson or Fort Washita or uh a rendezvous in Altmulgee or uh Fort Smith anywhere and we're always with him going to rendezvous or, you know, if he want to go somewhere to go read about some type of research that he found. And so it, it kind of just came naturally. And, you know, as a kid, I didn't think nothing of it. I thought it was like, uh, I thought it was cool. I get to hang with my grandpa. Who yeah. Was my who I hang out with. And, um, but yeah, he was a uh, very influential in revitalizing a lot of the Seminole textiles uh, at the time. And of course there were others, but he's the one I really, uh, really looked up to growing up. And he, uh, a lot, a lot of his work was really, uh, 
really well done and it, it was uh it's stuff you want to see a lot because you know a lot of days and this is a, mainly because of uh, how would i say assimilation and gen- a cultural genocide where a lot of our people didn't you know see that uh normally the traditional clothing that we would have seen that was from the early 1800s mm-hmm. and a lot of people you know they'd be wearing patchwork nowadays or uh, cowboy hats and but seeing this thing it, it really uh piques a lot of people's interests and and uh therefore uh, it, it sparked something in me when i became of uh, <clears throat> a reasonable age and kind of took that upon myself and i really didn't really pick it up until he uh passed away in 2017 because that, that's when it finally hit me was mm-hmm. i was like well one of our greatest resources has gone on to the next life and he did a lot of work and it, it, would, be, it would be a shame if all that hard work that he'd done had gone gone to waste wow. so i i, I uh, took it upon myself to finish out anything that he might have uh, been working on and trying to further some of the work that he uh, he started and basically all was kind of just carrying on the torch because i mean, he had mentors be, uh before him that brought him together uh, to to where he was so this is kind of more of just like a relay until we finally get to the the, the finish line and so it, it's, it's it's more of just the this um generations of trying to keep these traditional teachings alive and he, he was my main inspiration in, into doing this type of work and like I said, I really uh, fully encompassed myself with that type of work when he passed away. And of course, I saw like resources here. Of course, uh, one writing factor, he's one of my my main go-to guys here in Seminole County. And, and of course, my director, Dave, uh, David Frank, he, uh, he doesn't do he doesn't do the textiles, but he does a lot of uh, he has he has a lot of the traditional knowledge of this um, uh, the old stories and about ceremonial grounds. And you know, there's all kinds of people that, that have helped me out and. So I got this really good plethora of people that are willing yeah. to help out and they, they all were all serving the same purpose as to identify as uh, Seminole or uh, Muscogee people. And so, and so it's, it's a really good, um, it's a good feeling when you run around those type of people, because um, of course I always joke around them. Uh, I'm around these guys a lot and I'm kind of <laughs> taking a lot upon a lot of their mannerisms because they're, you know, I want to say about 40 years older than I am. So right. I got this young guy hanging out, you know, this uh, older gentleman. That's but, such an honor. It really is. Yeah. You learn so much from them. Yeah. yeah there's, there's all kinds of stuff I learned from them. And I, I kind of prefer that way, you know, being around people that uh, know what's going on and we're not, you know, just wander around aimlessly. We have this set <laughs> right. uh, agenda we're trying to ac- or accomplish. And, and it's all just in, uh, like, once again, that camaraderie, we're all here for each other. And we're, we're trying to keep this, uh, trying to keep this um culture alive uh, sure. you know whether it's through bow making or our linguistics or if it's through textiles anything that's our main thing is to uh one day in 50 years still be able to identify as seminal people absolutely well and i think it's interesting that the fact that you do hang out with people that are older than you and and you enjoy their conversations and you learn from them and all that it really must speak to kind of your maturity at age 19 when you really started making the clothing and then you know you see your your grandpa pass away and you're like oh my gosh if i don't step up and and carry on his what he was doing it may be gone forever and then now mm-hmm. you're you know in your 20s and 
you know, people are asking you to put your clothing that you're making into their museums. I mean, that's, that's pretty impressive. I love that you're getting that opportunity. So your grandpa was from your mother's side. So your mom's dad, tell us more about him. Um, So not only was he a historian and a textile artist, but he also was a a politician and he uh, served on the general council for the Seminole nation for a little over 40 years. And he, uh, was a uh, council representative for the the Tom Palmer band. Wow, smart guy. Yeah, and this uh, the one of the things you know, being a politician, it's got to wear on you doing this for <laughs> for a little over four decades. Right. <laughs> oh, for sure. And um, so, and he was born in Oklahoma, right? Correct. And didn't you tell me something about during the Relocation Act during the 1950s, he was moved uh somewhere else correct yeah so yeah so if and um, if no anyone's not familiar with the relocation act was a uh once again a uh, assimilation process in the 1950s where the uh, uh federal government tried to lure native people into metropolitan areas and not rely on the land and try to focus on being um dependent on getting a job or uh, anything any like that getting an education and try to you know keep them away from their ceremonies and all the things that we've we've been doing since the beginning of time and so it was it was, a, it was an eradication process and so unfortunately there uh, my family was one of the people that were um put in that situation and they had moved to uh, compton california in the 1950s and so he grew up there and he later went to college at haskell university in kansas where he met my grandmother uh linda roy uh they had met there their freshman year and Mm-hmm. They were, uh, they got married in, uh, I want to say 1971. And so, uh, or it might've been 1971, the two, but, um, they, uh, that's where they had met and he, uh, took her back to California a little bit. And then they, uh, finally all came back here to Oklahoma and settled around, uh, first in Wewoka and then, and then later in, uh, Earlsboro where my, where my grandmother still, uh, is, uh, till to this day. You know, what's interesting about that whole thing is that was the 1950s. That wasn't that long ago. It was still yeah, going absolutely. on. I want to say in the 1990s, there was this, how, how, how would we call it, the, the judgment fund thing that we had got with the Seminole Nation. And we were getting, uh, there was a, a treaty that was broken. And so the, the Seminole, no way. We, we sued <laughs> the federal government and we had uh, gotten a settlement. And if anyone knows about the, the Trail of Tears, uh, the Seminoles, I believe we got the worst treatment because a lot of our men were uh brought here as prisoners of war and they were uh, locked up in chains and shackles well in the 1990s or it might have been the late 80s the uh federal government tried to take off the chains and shackles off their uh off their reimbursement to the tribe wow and basically saying tell the seminoles oh we don't uh we're not going to pay you back for this even though we of we course right yeah even though we brought you here as prisoners of war we're not going to uh, your reimbursement so that once again that wasn't that too long ago it really wasn't well mm-hmm. and um i was you know looking at more information on what you're talking about with the uh, relocation act of the 50s and there's this poster and it says chicago land indians get good jobs and it has you know pictures of people doing um like manual labor and you know trying to encourage them to go out there and and get a job with this act. And, you know, it says voluntary, but I just wonder what did that voluntary look like? I assume 
maybe some did see that and go, okay, maybe this is an opportunity. Maybe I'm out of a job right now or something. So it sounds like your grandpa Dwayne passed, you know, in 2017 and, and what a big loss for your family, but also for the preservation of Seminole textile and clothing expertise. And thankfully you were there to carry it on and to be able to not let that die out when, when he was gone. Um, I'm so glad that someone was at the ready to take over Mm -hmm. and ensure his expertise wasn't lost forever. So tell us about what an 18th and 19th century Seminole man would wear. I just want to hear more about that. I've seen a lot of your pictures, um, but let's start with the turbans. Yeah. So the, uh, the, so the, what we call the traditional clothing, which came about during the, the fur trade and what it was down the Southeast, we mostly kind of re- relied on natural fibers of hemp and uh, palmettos for uh, weaving skirts or uh, any type of like mantle and animals, uh, animal furs for whether it was bison or uh, deer hide or uh, raccoon pelts, anything like that. Mm-hmm. And so once the, the, once we made that connection with the uh, Europeans, we kind of made this fur trade and we started tra- uh, trading a lot of our, our clothing away for fabrics. And we, we really liked the colors and the, the prints at the time. And, and we really were really uh, highly or, uh, ornated with our clothing. And so we, Really, uh, th- that's one of like our main things with the not just the Seminole people, but a lot of the uh, the Southeast, the the Chickasaws and the Choctaws and uh, Cherokees and the Muscogee Creeks, and uh, even a lot of Shawnees uh, did that also. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we kind of we kind of t- uh, fully encompass ourselves with our clothing. And one of the most noticeable things is we have turbans, and it's a lot different than like what we would see in the in the plains of a. Uh, a uh, war bonnet with the feathers ours is a fabric that was a trade cloth mm. it was wrapped around the head and there's there's a variety of ways you can wrap a turban and we would decorate it with mostly for the seminoles we really stuck with the uh ostrich feathers which were once again brought through us through trade but we could also you know decorate it with red hawktail feathers or eagle feathers or turkey feathers and crane now, that, that's one of the most noticeable things about uh the southeastern tribes is that we uh, we use turbans and you know working your way down. Of course, we had the the trade slivers of earrings and uh, gorgets and armbands and even nose rings at the time. And uh, we wore uh, calico uh, ruffled coats at the time. Where we had when we decorated with applique or just a variety of ruffles on the coat and with trade shirts and wool leggings that came in uh, black and blue and red and. I'm surprised because, you know, you were a Florida tribe that it was wool. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the, uh, the main like misconceptions when we, uh, uh, as a historian is uh, we didn't wear that every day. We didn't dress up, you know, the stuff that you see in the paintings. We didn't dress like that every day. Okay. They look pretty that, fancy uh, in those paintings. Yeah. And that, that type of clothing, uh, we only use that when we uh, went to treaty signings or to the ceremonial ground or. Gotcha. Was, um, to the uh, to the trading posts, anything like that. That's when we got in our, our best clothing. Uh, in reality, we kind of kept the the clothing to the minimum. Whether it was for the men, we would wear uh, just moccasins and a breech cloth and leggings. Uh, for the women, it would be like a a, a woven palmetto skirt made of um, uh, the palms or hemp or 
anything, any like natural fibers. Of course, they had moccasins on and uh, maybe maybe a mantle to cover up the the upper half of their body. Or but the clothing was pretty minimal. And you know, like so going back to the the pre-contact, we uh, uh, were really uh, decorated with uh, tattoos back then. Mm. And once trade came about, and we stopped using those designs on our bodies, but we still uh, wore them. We transferred a lot of those designs into our beadwork, what you see nowadays, that is preserved in our bandolier bags. Those were put on there instead of uh, having tattoos. And there, there's a really cool, uh, I was doing some research on tattooing and beadwork and trying to find the connection. I actually found a design that was on a Muskogee Creek man a design that was on the midsection that I had seen, I had found on a uh, bandolier bag that were taken 100 years apart from each other. Wow. That's so that really, crazy. That, that shows that, yeah, it really shows that uh, transition uh, period when we uh, start to move things around. And so it, it didn't uh, totally go away in general. We just put it in uh, in different uh, forms of art. So what instruments did they use to do these, you know, the more traditional tattoos? So those, uh, what we would have used was um, a lot of um, bones and uh, antlers and of course we like i said we use ink a lot of the uh tattooing colors would either would have been black or red mm. and those would have been given to a certain individual for a um a personal achievement to identify their clan and you know certain thing like certain things like that a, a star constellation or a, a medicine design anything like that that's what they type of designs would have used way back then and where did they typically place the tattoos on their bodies uh basically just about anywhere just depending on where uh what design you're using uh there was face tattooings arms on the the bodies and legs like i said that they would have been everywhere and it's, on the, it's, on the, on the individual like men and women or just just men correct uh it was both men and women uh it wasn't just seminoles the uh i know the choctaws uh use that also and the uh the cherokees and um even the tribes up uh Far up in the northeast, a lot of the Iroquois tribes mm-hmm. uh, use those. Isn't it interesting? I mean, I think a lot of people may not know that. They would think that a tattoo was more of a recent thing. But yeah, the, I mean, if you look at a lot of the older pictures or you start studying it, there's a lot more to that. So are, have you ever gotten one of those traditional tattoos yourself? No, I'm actually uh, waiting on one uh, pretty soon because I'm not going to use the tattooing gun. I, I know a guy that's still can do that but he's all the way down in florida so i'm waiting him waiting on him to come down here we're actually we're trying to build a chicky for work and he's gonna bring some palmettos cool. and i said while you're up here i said will you bring all your uh, tools and we'll get started on a tattoo and, and are you using the the antlers and the deer bones yeah yes yes he, he's using, that's so uh, cool bone. yeah so he's using bones and uh, antlers on my we're gonna do the arms first and hopefully oh my gosh we'll, we'll, we'll do the on the chest and midsections and do you think it'll hurt? Uh, I'm not for sure yet. I, uh, I don't have any tattoos yet, but I, I'm, I'm just going to block it out and just be more excited that I'll have the tattoos finally. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, when you really want to do something, you do it. That's a lesson for you kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just, I can't picture though how they do it. So let's say the antler, they take it and they dip it in something. Yeah. So all it is just the hand poking uh, techniques. Okay. And it's, and, it's permanent, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, okay. permanent. Yes. Correct. <clears throat> wow. 
Well, will you send us pictures when you get your tattoos done? Would love to see those. Yeah, yeah that's the the one thing. Uh, hopefully, by this time next year, late next year, my main focus after I finish uh, some of these uh, 19th century, century textiles is to do a pre-contact outfit. And yeah. so what I want to do next is um, look like a Seminole man from the 1400s and having the tattoos and wearing a uh, brain tan leggings and a uh, porcupine and deer tail roach and wearing a, uh, a uh, turkey uh, feathered cape. Yes. And that would really be awesome. To, yeah. You really should write a book too someday and, you know, have pictures in there and all that. Yeah, that's one of the things I've always wanted to do was uh, just compile a uh, book on on, on my uh, on my findings on my research about Seminoles and uh, the Muscogee people, and and I think it would be a really more authentic because it would be by the actual indigenous person, not a, a researcher or right. a professor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, learn learn from the uh, expert native instead of the native expert. Ah, well said. <laughs> Well, so I wanted to back up a little bit when you were talking about the turbans earlier, and I've seen your photos of you in them. They look so cool. Are they, do they stay on your head really well or do they come off? Do they slide off? Oh, no, they're, they, uh, I wrap them pretty, uh, pretty tight around my head. And uh, of course, uh, sometimes our, most times I wear a turban band, which kind of helps it from like unraveling and falling okay. apart. Yeah. So and- that's one of the main things that kind of helps out. And I, I mostly kind of just depends on what, what, uh, what fabric you're using. I tend to usually use uh, calicos or uh, cotton scarves. Uh, I, I try to stay away from silk because it's kind of slides around too much. Yes. <laughs> I Didn't you tell me at one point too that the calicos were actually pretty expensive back in the day? Yeah. So uh, calico prints were actually pretty, uh, I said, were pretty costly for the main part in the 18th century. So a lot of people were wearing linens back then, which were more of like a workwear. Mm-hmm. And it's because they were uh, uh, more of a coarsely, uh, loosely woven uh, fabric, and uh, they didn't have to use a lot of dyes for it because they didn't. It wouldn't make a lot of sense to try to put a uh, flower print on a linen shirt. Uh, one of the least costly things in the 18th century was um, blue wool, and uh, the color, the indigo blue, was uh, fairly inexpensive to make that color. And mm-hmm. so we would kind of. Uh, compare that to wearing like blue jeans that we would call it nowadays, you know, wearing like a pair of Wranglers. So those were so ubiquitous at the time of wearing right. blue, uh, <laughs> having uh, a blue uh, stroud cloth. And so uh, red was pretty expensive because there was a the dyeing process. It was that took a lot of uh, resources to make that color. And, and then so calico uh, fabrics did become pretty uh, affordable in the, around the 1830s, but it was still, um, it was seen as a luxury in, 18, in the 18th century because it was tightly woven. There was so much um, dyes used on the on the prints, and so a lot of times uh, early on, the uh, calico fabrics were used to uh, dignitaries. Wow! And you know, today we just take that for granted. You can go go down to the Joanne Fabrics and pick out a calico, and it's not expensive, like a dollar eighty a yard or something. I don't know, but. Mm-hmm. So when you were talking about the, uh, when we're talking about the turbans, is that something that was only dressed in the pictures or was that a daily wear for men? I, I would assume that the, uh, the turbans might've been used for uh, all year round because once, once again, we our, our hairstyles were a little bit different. 
than just having you know the the long straight black hair mm-hmm. and we we uh shaved our heads a lot hmm. down there and had a lot of mohawks and scalp walks at the time and so I, I would assume that we use those turbans to keep the sun off of our heads and also you know kind of keep ourselves cool in the winter also yeah for sure i never even thought about the fact that part of the reason some natives shaved their heads could have been just because of the heat. So we've gone kind of head to toe here, uh, but let's talk about the toe, the feet. How about the moccasins? Yeah. So the, the moccasins that we used, it was a, uh, what we called a pucker toed moccasins. And so what those were, it was just a one piece, uh, different what you would see what, what were one about the codas were, were multiple pieces. The, in the Southeast, we, we use, like, like I said, the, center seam pucker toed moccasins and we just have a seam that goes um from your from your toes all the way up to the arch of your foot mm-hmm. and of course on the back of your heel and that's all you had to stitch up okay so yeah i'll i'll be posting a youtube video you're on via the seminole nation giving instructions on how to make those moccasins so listeners be sure to check out my native chalk talk facebook page to learn how to make those on your own and i'm going to be doing it too so maybe we could do it together and how about the jewelry? You talked a little bit about the jewelry worn by the Seminoles. Um, it, it sounds kind of like they were flamboyant with their trade silvers, right? Oh, absolutely. We had a lot of trade silvers of, uh, like I said, earrings and gorgets and turban bands and armbands and bracelets and nose rings. And of course, we had trade beads also. Uh, there would be people wearing multiple trade beads at the time and even wearing uh, peace medals also. So we were really uh, highly uh, uh, ornamented on what the in our clothing way back then. Wow, I, I would have made a great seminal <laughs> jewelry. <laughs> uh, so, by the way, uh, you and I were talking about McKee's Indian Store in Anadarko, Oklahoma, which is my hometown, and I get a lot of my silver there because the prices are fantastic. But also, there they do have one cabinet that is local artist. So sometimes I try to buy something from that and. If I see something else I like in the store, I'll be sure to pick that up, but they do have deer hide there and all that. So if people are looking to do those, that moccasin tutorial on YouTube with us, then um, that's a great place to go. Where else can people go to get the deer hide, by the way? Um, so a lot of people just buy it online. Uh, yeah. You can go to like, a, like a, the, the Tandy leather shop or a crazy crow or the wandering bull. But typically I try to make own leather. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm really excited to get to that. Yeah, I knew the topic you want to talk about was making your own leather. (laughs) Yeah, we're definitely going to get to that. It's a really cool process because uh, a lot of uh, leathers that you get nowadays are uh, commercially tanned. They use uh, chemicals to make leather Mm -hmm. from the the hides. From the uh, traditional standpoint of using, you would do uh, brain tanning. Yes. And something I would recommend to our listeners is if you're going to do the tutorial, don't go buy the most expensive leather is out there. Just buy something cheap that you can get online or wherever McKee's again, I'm, I'm a big fan of McKee's, but before we talk about the brain tanning. So when it came to women, when I was asking you about what the women wore, you had mentioned that they weren't seen as dignitaries, which I think is interesting because they were matrilineal, right? Yeah. Even though we come from a, a matrilineal society, a lot of the, the dealings weren't done with the women back then because the, uh, uh, the American colonies and uh, European nations didn't see women as um, as a high as a hiding rank. Uh-huh. So the, the, a, lot of the, a lot of the dealings were done with the men 
way back then during the contact. Okay. Interesting. So that really does surprise me. You know, a lot of our tribes see women as, you know, they're the, the human, they birth these humans and they're the life givers. And so a lot of times they're highly regarded, but in some tribes, not so much, but so you're not only working on the preservation of the knowledge around textiles, you're also learning, as you mentioned earlier before, about other areas of the everyday seminal life. And so you mentioned the blowguns and a lot of these things you can't find in a book. And so thanks for these great efforts for preservation. I think it's interesting. You mentioned that harvesting traditional knowledge last time we talked is just as prestigious as having a college degree. And I couldn't agree more. That's, it's a fantastic way to look at it. And because you value being able to hunt and build a shelter and those sort of things, I'd love to hear more about that. In fact, I promised our listeners earlier that we'd hear more about the brain tanning. I'm busting at the seams to get to that. Listeners, if you are eating right now, you may want to put that sloppy Joe down for a moment. Trust me on this. <laughs> so tell me all about the brain tanning. It's like from beginning to end, you kill a deer. What happens from there? So what happens from there? The funny thing too, with the brain tanning, uh, it was a, a woman's job way back then. I would, I would just want my job just to hunt it down and bring it back to camp. <laughs> now I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing all of it. We got to do the, the hunting process <laughs> and the tanning and then butchering. So <laughs> I'm taking all the roles upon myself. And the, the, I would think that's not like a great way to pick up a girl, you know, that, Hey, I just killed this deer. Would you do the brain tanning? I think would make a great team, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so the, uh, the, the tanning process is so the, uh, how you would go about it. Um, one, once you get the, the hide, it, it's going to go bad regardless. Cause it's, uh, it's not alive anymore. So what you're going to do, you can put it up on a frame and you're going to get you, um, if it's more of a contemporary fashion, you're going to get you an iron tool or traditionally you would get you a piece of flint or a shoulder bone that was sharp and you scrape off all the hairs on the one side that on the outer, outer layer. And on the inside, scraping off all the fat and membrane and uh, tissues and all that and getting all that off of there. Scrape it nice and clean. And what you want to do after that, you're going to put it in the solution, water solution. And what that is, what we call it brain tanning, is you're going to take the brains from that deer and you're going to mush them up into like really kind of fine kind of uh, to a, like a really fine kind of texture. kind of feels like. To me, it kind of like yogurt when you kind of when you want to kind of work it down a little mm-hmm. bit, and you mix it with some uh, hot water, and it's kind of gross. You'll never look at uh, strawberry milk the same because it looks like strawberry milk basically. <laughs> oh God! And, <laughs> and so you you, uh, you put your hide in the uh, in the in that solution, let it soak overnight. You get it out, you stretch it, and we'll do it again. Uh, same process as one. Well, I mean, of course, we wanted to wring it out stretch the hide make sure everything's uh, working good there's there's it's 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 pliable and and so basically what the whole process is when you're stretching out that hide it, it's kind of like a fabric it's kind of like like uh like a weave and everything's kind of woven in and if you take a if you look at some fabric and you kind of look there's little tiny holes in there it is never fully closed up you know the the, mm-hmm. the pores that you see like on the skin with with the hide and once, once you stretch it, they start to pull apart. And what that solution does, as well, we use those, um, use the brains and the animal, is we start to put the um, soak it in the solution, and the brains from the the oil from the brains. There, there's a lot of oils in there that are rich, uh, really rich oil in there, 
that gets into those pores have been stretched out and they got those open it's going to fill in those open spaces and it's not going to close back up it'll mm, stay in that that's and amazing I, how who, yeah, how do they figure that out I, I would think it was just more just the process of uh trial and errors back then and, and of course you know they had a lot of help from the creator mm-hmm. and and I'm sure it took a lot of experimentation way back then. So they're 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 far far highly advanced than we are nowadays to true figure out something like that. And and so with that solution, when you get the the brains in there, and it's going to fill in those open spaces. And when when you do a tan hide, it doesn't look like that. You know that that brown color everyone goes for. It, it looks kind of more like a like a grayish kind of color. Hmm. And uh, to get that color. And also, you're going to waterproof it at the same time. So what you're going to do is what we call the, the smoking process, which happens next. And the smoking, what we do, we kind of put it on a frame, um, kind of like in a, where it kind of looks like a teepee, or we dig a hole in the ground, and we kind of put it over where it kind of looks like a miniature sweat lodge in a way. Mm-hmm. And we put like a fire pit, and we start a fire, and we, we're not trying to light on fire. We're trying to get the smoke. So we take some leafy greens something that's green or get that smoke to come through and makes it real profusely get that smoke to come out. Mm-hmm. And so what that smoke does, once again, it's going to fill into those holes and that smoke's going to get in there and it's going to be waterproofed. And that color that from the smoke uh, makes it turn to a, a, that brown color. And of course, you can also dye it to a different color if you want using, uh, using walnuts or any other type of uh, natural uh, resources. Uh, just, just uh, you just got to know what you what your what desired color. Yeah, that's so cool. And and then how do you preserve it after all of that? So after the uh, the um, after the smoking process, you're done. You can use it for make moccasins or leggings, or use it for uh, a mat, anything. Make into a bag. After that smoking process, you're good to go. And I assume this is not. A fast process. How long does it usually take yeah, you? Yeah, and it's very strenuous, and you gotta be very patient with it. And yeah, yeah. I bet. If, if you've never done it before, don't expect to be an expert right on your first try. I've I messed up in the first couple times I did it, and I've I've learned from my mistakes. And but it is it's just all about consistency at this point. So what do you think? Like two or three days? I mean, if you're good at it. Yeah, I would say yeah, about two or three days. Just depends on uh, on your process. Yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting too, you you said earlier that it's definitely not the way it's commercially done. And in those cases, they use chemicals because obviously that's not scalable for someone who's mass producing these hides and such. But I would think that the way you're doing it is so much, it probably, I mean, think about the TPs that today, I don't know, well, there could be Buffalo in there, but like the way that they did things back in the day with our ancestors, that stuff lasted. Yeah, absolutely. So- how did you learn to do this? Who taught you? Uh, Rodney is one of the guys who taught me how to uh, use that, uh, taught me that process. And I learned from other, other guys and learned their different methods. Uh, one yeah. of the, the guy who taught me how to do flint napping was Noel Grayson. He's a Cherokee guy. And he, when I when I said, hey, no, I need your help on show me how to do something like this. He says, okay. He said, I'm going to teach you what I know. He said, I'm not going to teach you the way to do it. This is the way I've done it. Uh-huh. There's, there's a hundred ways you can do this. It's just the way that I've been doing it never stop learning from someone on, on these types of things. Oh yeah. Right. And just kind of perfecting it over time. And so you mentioned one time that an elder brought you some raw hides for your birthday, right? Yeah. Oh, last year 
on my birthday, my uh, one of my elders, he's an older Alabama man uh, from uh, Tukabuchi, and he uh, he brought me some deer hides, and I thought that was one of my, my favorite um, gifts ever. I bet. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, how much time did that take him? That that's a, like an amazing gift. Yeah, I was very uh, humbled, and it, it really brought a smile to my face when he did that. So listeners is this shocking to you about the brain tanning write to me on facebook and let me know if this is old news to you or if this is a method that you've heard of before it really is a, as much as we hear the word brain and it's kind of gross and all that it's a beautiful thing it's basically taking what nature gives us and creating necessary parts of our personal environment um for us to live i mean some people made dresses out of them and again the leggings and all that so what it really is is you're uh taking uh something else's life to extend your own well said so you mentioned to me the other day that you do hunt the deer yourself and you're using a bow and arrowheads to do so and of course you're making the arrowheads yourself because well you don't do things halfway. So tell me about how you're making the arrowheads. Yeah, so there is a, the process going to be called flint napping. And here in Oklahoma, we uh, it's kind of hard to find some good flint. So we use a lot of chert. And once again, the Noel Grayson is one of the guy who, guys who taught me how to do flint napping. And uh, basically all it is, you, you take a big piece of rock, you bang them together, get your flakes, you examine it, get your angles, and you take a, your a billet or antler and you apply some pressure and it's going to flake and that's where you get your sharp edge and you just get what to your desired shape that you're going you're trying to achieve with that mm -hmm. and there's also different methods you can use for um for arrows uh, i found some research every day about and there's even a, a on a through seminoles we use uh antlers on our arrows so on the arrow so what you would do you would take an antler sharpen the tip drill a hole in it and um, stick it into your arrow shaft. So when you hit the deer, you can take your arrow right back out, but the point is still in there. You won't get it back until you butcher. Mm, wow. And there's other methods too of using, uh, I've even seen people use the uh, black locusts. Those big giant thorns are real hard. Really? And yeah. Wow. You would, you would, you would put those and those black locust thorns, they're going to be at least about, I want to say about three inches long. And I mean, they can even go longer than that, but man, they're, they're tough. Mm -hmm. now, in, uh, in my research, uh, I believe it wasn't Nicholas Cresswell, but this is in the 17, uh, 17, uh, I want to say mid to late 1700s. These homesteaders in Ohio were making a, um, uh, building a log cabin and mm -hmm. they are they're trying to find because they're on the they're on the wilderness on the, the frontier and they're trying to build these shingles with uh made out of bark and what they did was they uh took black locust thorns and used those as nails because they were so hard and they wouldn't break from the hammer wow that's amazing and then when you're doing the flint napping method how long does it usually take you to make an arrowhead uh i, I guess it just kind of depends because uh how sharp I want it to be and if I want to make it look real pretty and it, it kind of just depends it, it would just take me uh, just a few hours just to perfect yeah. it I, yeah. I'm not as good as, I'm no so I'm not a no not an expert I'm just I'm just better than I was yesterday yeah yeah exactly aren't we all so these arrowheads really do kill the deer I still have a hard time picturing that they can take down a deer but of course they do you know our ancestors did it for a very long time so they must be pretty darn sharp. So I, I assume the Seminole ate deer and what else did they eat? Uh, so there, there's a variety. We, uh, of course, in the Southeast, we were 
uh, an ag- agriculturally based people. We lived in permanent settlements. And so we, uh, we re- relied heavily on corn and uh, pumpkins and all, all kinds of uh, varieties of uh, um, natural foods in the area that we use. And of course, like I so said, we used a lot of animals back then. We used a lot of deer and uh, believe it or not, we did have bison way back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wasn't just, uh, it was a different species of bison also. Uh, the woodlands bison or eastern bison and they're, they're a little bit they're smaller than the bison that we see nowadays but that was a bison that we had back then there of course they uh went extinct due to overhunting uh, even, even uh deer almost the white-tailed deer in the, the southeast almost went extinct uh early on due to the uh overhunting through the fur trade oh, okay. uh, fortunately yeah. they did not go extinct and they're they're starting to make a comeback but mm-hmm. Uh, they were facing extinction down the southeast of the white-tailed deer. There's even talks of people are in the southeast of them eating uh, bears back then. Oh, really? And there, there's, there's a lot of things you can use bears for, too. Uh, totally. Uh, they, they'd eat the meat. Um, the, the intestines, the bear intestines are really good for a, a bowstring. Ah, okay. Uh, even the, the grease that you get from the bear, from the fats, you had, uh, you'd melt it up and use it for basically anything. It, it was medicinal. They use it for on their faces for moisturizer. They really? Use it to, uh, to fix their hair, um, to wax their bows. There's all kinds of stuff you can use uh, bear grease for. Uh, sounds like I need to get some bear grease as a, you know, an old fashioned tip for wrinkle removal. Yeah. <laughs> I never, I'd never heard that one. Wow. So you once mentioned a book to me that I thought was interesting. Why don't you tell our listeners about that book? Yeah, so the Deerskins and Duffels, that's one of my favorite books to uh, reference. And so what that book really is, is uh, once again, it's not about the Seminoles, but it's also uh, about the Muskogee Creeks in the mid to late 1700s. And it talks about the fur trade and what it was like back then. And there's some writings and there's some quotations done by William Bartram and James Adair and Benjamin Hawkins. And there's one of my favorite things in that book. It shows a trade list and shows everything that they had back then for a trade. And that really helps me out a lot when I'm doing these historical interpretations and trying to find the right accurate materials when I'm trying to, uh, well, I'm not mixing up time periods. So when I do my research, I really look, look at those trade lists. I'll go online and I have this uh, certain website I go to. I just look at these trade lists from two, 300 years ago mm-hmm. and try to differentiate these uh, things that I see online. I was like, oh, I can buy that because it says it on this <laughs> list they had it in this year. Yeah. And, and so on that uh, on that book, it has this trade list, but also it shows this comparison, how much these certain items would have been cost for a deer hide. And, you know, of course, it's in the 1700s, so some of the deer hides would have been more expensive and way back then. So, uh, so, so for instance, a flintlock rifle, I think it was a, uh, uh, might have been a Lancaster, a Kentucky rifle. But just for one rifle, would have cost you 16 deer hides. Oh, my God. Wow. And in, in that book, I believe uh, for one yard of calico uh, fabric was, I think, one or two deer hides, just for one yard of calico fabric. So then that that book, it kind of really shows you how the uh, in the southeast, the deer almost went extinct. Because we, we see this list of how much deer was being used for these trade lists. And, you know, it wasn't <laughs> just, you know, it wasn't, wasn't just for a, a, like a season like we hunt nowadays in, in November, right. or October through December. This is all year round for, you know, decades. Mm-hmm. So it really shows how kind of gets a good comparison as to why the, the white-tailed deer almost went extinct. Yeah. Absolutely. 
and that's a lot of brain tanning. So this has been super interesting. Um, And is there anything you'd like to share about the Seminole Nation itself? Uh, The only thing I know about the Seminoles is we, uh, there's two Seminoles that be, uh, I I don't address them by the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma or Seminole Tribe of Florida. I just say the Seminole Nation because I don't like to separate us because it makes us sound like we're distant and Mm -hmm. we're still the same people. Mm -hmm. uh, Of course, the Seminoles were not just a one, we're not a tribe, but we're a nation of various tribes that came together, what we call bands. So we're, we're a mixture of the Muscogee people and Chiaha and Hijiti and Mikasuki and all these other various uh, tribes that uh, came together uh, in the uh, early 1800s and we started to be identified as uh, Seminole. And uh, so that, that's one of the things that, of course, uh, still to this day, the Seminole Nation uh, here in Oklahoma we uh, go by a, a traditional form of government. Uh, still to this day, we go by our band chiefs. We we uh, we operate under our bands, mm-hmm. and of course, like the matrilineal society, we get our our identities from our mothers. And so, not only the clans, but we also get our our bands, which would uh, whether it was a, a tribal town or. And so, we still operate under that system to this day, and we still have fourteen existing or. Uh, 12 traditional bands and two freedmen bands in the Seminole Nation. And we, like I said, we still uh, observe that traditional form of government here in the present day. Mm-hmm. Wow. And which, which is, in, in my opinion, the, uh, the most democratic form of government, because this is where the citizens or members actually have a rightful say-so what goes on in the government. So you mentioned, you know, there were the tribes that died from this smallpox and that some of those tribes became extinct. Yeah, so uh, we're actually working on a, a research book right now with the University of Florida on a uh, Tamukwin language book. And our theories are that a lot of these tribes didn't all just become eradicated from the earth. We believe, um, and of course, it, you have, would call it by a scientific standard, it's called a, a theory uh, as to what, what I'm trying to project right now. Mm-hmm. And what I, what, uh, what I believe is these tribes did not go extinct. They just... Um, immigrated in with other uh, tribal tribal bands in the area, and so we got a lot of uh, some mixed bloods. Even though they don't identify by that that ancient tribe, they still are present here in the present day. And even some of them even might have even left, uh, not even went to another tribe, but even took off to Puerto Rico or Cuba, right, or even down in South America. You know, you you said I think they live within me. And that's, that's lovely. Absolutely. So, and how many Seminole are there today? Uh, so here in the, here in Oklahoma, we have uh, roughly around 18,500 uh, enrolled uh, members of the nation. Yeah. And then uh, for Florida, even though I know you say you call it a nation because you don't want them to seem separate, the Oklahoma mm-hmm. and the Florida Seminole, but um, there's a few thousand in Florida too, right? Yeah, yeah, there's there's still a pretty good standing of uh, Seminoles down there. They have some reservations down there. Of course, they have the the Big Cypress Reservation and and the uh, no. There's there's a lot of uh, I said that a lot of Seminoles are pretty uh, predominant in that state. Yeah, well, go Seminole Nation. We're cheering you on. And <laughs> one great way for people to see some of the things that the Seminole Nation is doing today is to check out the Seminole Nation Historic Preservation facebook page 
And I'll be sure to post the link on my Facebook page as well. So people can check that out, join the group at, or I don't know if it's a follower group, I'm on it as well. And there's some really interesting stuff on there. And all of this is really about educating ourselves more about the Seminoles and getting to know um, the culture and the traditions and the, just the history alone is, is very fascinating. So uh, uh, finally, Jake, are there any words of wisdom that you'd like to share with myself or our listeners? Yeah, so um, for my closing statement, uh, what I want to give to you and the listeners is, uh, number one, continue to be proud of who you are, whether if you're similar or not, if you're Cherokee or Choctaw or if you're Lakota Sioux, um, be proud of where you came from because your existence is a, uh, a form of resistance against cultural genocide and no matter how hard they try to get rid of you, you're still here. So it is your um, responsibility and also your honor to keep your your language going and these traditional teachings. And there's no reason why you should not do it. It belongs to you and it's yours. So you should pick it up and take it with you. No matter what it is, if you pick up a word a day, if you pick up any type of craft, it's yours and claim it and be proud of it. And also keep it going and give it to the younger ones and just teach them the right way of life of respecting one another and working together. And I think that's, that's our true answer to a lot of our problems is Mm -hmm. we need to slow down and really look at life as something that we all should be working together to make our lives better, better for one another. That's perfect. uh, Which means uh, thank you. And Yakuki. Thank you. I, I really appreciate what you just said, because it is something that you live every day. You're giving us that advice and it's not anything that you're not doing yourself. You're sitting down with others and helping them learn and, and even teaching us on YouTube. And we appreciate that. So thanks for sharing about your quest for preservation and please keep up that good work, that great work really, and sharing your expertise. So your culture continues to live on and so that we all continue to learn. So again, Yakuki. Absolutely. And uh, like I said, if any of y'all see me in a, in a museum or doing a demonstration, <laughs> don't, be, don't be afraid to come up and ask me any questions. I'll be glad to teach you anything that I, I, I can share with you. I love that. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. And here at Chicky Shea Wings, we teach people to fly. We've got 11 airplanes, nine flight instructors, and about five mechanics. We turn out about 80 new certificates or ratings each year. And we train pilots who now fly at the major airlines. We have they fly for the Air Force, the FAA, for private jets. They even have a few missionary pilots. Our customers come from all over the United States. Here at Chickasha, we're able to provide lower costs, a more focused training program, and we're able to provide a higher level of customer service. My favorite thing about this business is helping people. Because I see people go from not knowing anything about it to being an airline pilot. Come out here and learn to fly. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. 
Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends. <laughs>